morning, John 13. We were talking about balancing the responsibilities God's given us, various ministries or stewardships in this discussion of biblical ownership. And today, we're talking about one category that, that we, we keep coming up against, and it's, it's because it's the mission. We're talking about how God wants us to treat people as a stewardship, as a delegated responsibility, the people in our lives. And um, for me, this is a, a very helpful way to think about people that will be a repentance uh, sometimes. Whereas people can seem like a, a distraction or an inconvenience if they become a problem. People can also become uh, something we fixate on and um, we want a certain relationship that we don't have. We want to be treated a certain way that we're not being treated. All of our great problems in life generally are people problems. And, um, and it's not surprising why that is i mean you could say well you could think of problems that aren't people problems but if we got rid of the people problems the other ones would be a lot easier to deal with um and so uh, the way you approach this topic uh, there's a there there are lots of opinions i mean i have an opinion everybody here has an opinion we could just do you know the consensus view and see what what uh, what we kind of agree on dealing with people uh, the cut-and-run approach is very common. Uh, I hear people at times bragging about how they just don't put up with nonsense. And so when someone becomes nonsense to them, done, cut-and-run. I've even seen it proposed that if you don't sin towards someone, if I don't have mental attitude sins toward you, then I'm loving you in a standoffish sort of Christian way. I, just, I don't have any sin against you. And that's portrayed as love. Well, it's not, it's not nothing that you're not sinful toward an inconvenient person. But um, this, this is a heavy, heavy part of Christian stewardship or biblical ownership, the idea of what's been entrusted to us. And I hope, I hope at this point in our discussion, this is our eighth little discussion about biblical ownership, I hope you understand that stewardship doesn't mean giving to the church. That's really horrible uh, theology. It's non-reflective uh, religiosity. When you say stewardship is giving money, that's ridiculous. You have been given a sacred trust to bear God's image. That's your design, uh, the design criteria with which God grabbed a piece of dust from the ground, some dust from the ground and formed a man and then breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. That, that design and that construction followed the plan and the blueprint is stated in 126 of Genesis let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule. And this, this responsibility, this delegated awesome responsibility of bearing God's image and ruling for him includes all the things that God has given us, all of the things. And, and um, there, there's, a, you know, there's a, a debate in the, the grace theological community about how we are to relate between God's grace which has no works that you do to earn or deserve God's favor. That's what favor that God gives us. It's freely given because of what the work Jesus did. Then we're clear on the gospel. But then how does that interface with all the commands of the New Testament? And some say if you're really, if you're really walking and you understand what they call the identification truths, 
if you understand as a believer your position in Christ, then you don't need to be told about obedience as one of the seemingly thoughtful, one of the approaches people have is that you don't need to talk about obedience because, you know, if you if you're, know your position, then you, you'll rise to the occasion somehow. And um, I think that's an interesting theory. And I believe Romans 6 is really important to know who we are in Christ and what it means that you have trusted in him as far as your relationship to your sin nature. But then if you read the Bible, you find that the entire New Testament is full of commands to its audience. And does anybody know who the audience of the New Testament is? Church-age believers. Believers this side of the day of Pentecost. And I say 30, some say 30. I say 33. Some people think 30 AD. In this age that we're in, with the giving of the Holy Spirit to build the body of Christ, this new agency, the church is the, the audience, of the recipient of the New Testament. People say that um, John was written, for example, to, believe, to unbelievers. And they get that because in the end, in John 20, he says, these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And I believe every word of that. But what happens is they'll say that that's the summary um, of the book of John, and it's the purpose statement of the entire book of John. And so that means that everything before that has to be written simply to evangelize an unbeliever. Have you read John? Remember when Judas gets kicked out of the room? I mean, he, he, he kicks himself out of the room, and then it's only believers. And then Jesus teaches them the seed doctrine that is going to be the entire basis theologically for all that the epistles will hold in John 13 through 17, affectionately referred to as the upper room discourse. You can't do that. You can't say that's, a, that's to unbelievers. It's not. Only believers in the room. They're already clean from the word that he's given them. What am I saying? Well, in, in these debates, the theory is that if you, if you really are a believer, then you don't have to be told to obey. And hand in hand with that idea is that if you, if you think in terms of obedience, then you're trying to work uh, instead of receive God's grace. And it's that grace contradicts works because of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which I, again, believe every word. Of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But verse 10 tells you that you're created for good works to walk in. And the good works include an obedience factor where he says, this is what I want you to do. So to me, it's, it's more about exegesis than theological reasoning. It's more about what the Bible says than what people reason from their ideas of how grace works. I would get my ideas of how grace works if I correctly interpret exegete the passages that bear on it. And here's how I think this works. Do I think that you and the flesh are able to do the works of the Spirit? Do I think that you can, in your fleshly sinfulness, can do what the Holy Spirit alone can do? I don't think that. Do I think you and the Spirit are commanded to do the things that the Spirit of God wants to do through you? Yeah. So right there, it's grace that you can do the works God gave you. And that's why I think stewardship is such a helpful category. The command to deal with people, the commands that bear on dealing with people, are about a delegation. It's a privilege. Here is your royal garments. Here are your royal garments. Now go forth in royalty. Yeah, it's, the king tells us what he wants. The, the, we, he issues decrees and we have to fulfill them and it's a choice to do it. But it's the grace of God that enables us and the power of the Spirit to do these things. And so... 
it's not uh, right to say that obedience is a contradiction of the grace of God. It is the grace of God that enables us to obey. It's also not right to say that we are uh, not volitionally responsible. It's wrong to say that we don't have to make choices and that God holds us accountable for our choices as believers. And the accountability, beloved, is coming. Accountability for the choices that we make after we receive the Holy Spirit is coming for every one of us. We talked about this in the men's huddle yesterday. Um, most of you guys that were there could probably quickly tell me what happens after the rapture. And you'll say, the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll say, when is the judgment seat of Christ? And you'll say, after the rapture. And that's one of the points that we kind of <laughs> hammered home yesterday. When we are gathered together, one of the things that happens is that we receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And the rapture is not uh, popular today because it's been sensationalized. And it is a fairly sensational thought that any moment I'm with him. But that's true on the highway too. It's true, <laughs> you know, whenever we die, we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. But the rapture isn't when you die. The rapture is when you receive a resurrection body. And what I'm saying is there is coming this evaluation. And we get hung up on prophecy and the interesting uh, times we live in and the weird things that are happening. And we're thinking about, well, who's the Antichrist? And all of these, we're sliding into globalism every day more and more. Uh, and that's, that's predicted in Revelation. There's going to be this effort at one world government under Satan's man, the Antichrist, empowered by Satan. I mean, uh, we get into this Revelation 6 through 19, like, how's this all going to go? We're fighting the Houthis. We're now shooting them on their ground. Uh, so there's, there's this Iranian problem, and, and that's looking bad, especially with Russia and its war posture and all these things that we want to look at prophecy, but what you should ask is what applies to me? What prophetic future things that God has said are coming? And the judgment seat of Christ is the next big thing you have anything to do with. You can't do anything about all of the things that we're wondering about predictive prophecy, except for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. See what I mean? Like it's really, that's, that's your next Thing. There are lots of things you can look at and worry about, but there's, but there's coming something that you are guaranteed an appointment, appointment for, and it's really the next, the next thing. So what are you doing? What are you doing with your time as a believer? And that, that fits into the question of obedience and stewardship, the delegation of these things. Now, when you're told to do a chore, think about when you're a kid and you're told to do a chore, what is your immediate response if you're a kid and you want to watch TV or do something else besides the chore. You don't want to do it. You don't feel like it. <sighs> right? You might even roll your eyes and sigh in exasperation, which means to sigh. Exasperate. You're aspirating out. <sighs> right? When you're told to do something that you don't feel like doing. And what's wrong with that, obviously, is it's a bad attitude. And, you know, I don't want, come on, let's have some good attitude. Well, the difference between a winner and a loser in that situation, I'm given a chore, I can be a winner, I can be a loser. The difference is my attitude about it, which will affect how I perform the task. And if my attitude is, I want to do something different, I have other plans, I, 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 
I'll never be a winner about the task. But if rather I think of God has a plan for me, his plan includes certain responsibilities and stewardships, and he's delegated this to me, I have a trust. I have been given a responsibility, and now this is under me, and I'm going to sign off on it. I'm going to do a good job with it. And, and it, See, the, 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 the task didn't change, but the attitude changes. And that's what I mean about God's stewardship. It's, it's awesome that he has entrusted us with the challenges that he's entrusted us with. And so today we're talking about the, the delegation of the responsibility to take care or treat people how you treat people. We've talked about last couple times all the different areas where God has delegated to us. Property, work, the capacity to make decisions, the revelation that God's given us in his word, all these. And ultimately, the big one, remember, was your relationship with God. Well, your relationship with God is very clearly affected by how you treat people. And this is true of all in all ages, all through the scriptures, because God wants his image bearers to be like him. And so you've, you've got to become imitators of God and walk in love as beloved children, as Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 say. So we're talking today about loving people. Now, now this is interesting. Um, if, you, if you take possession or ownership of something, um, you begin to think of it differently than if it's borrowed or if it's someone else's. Ownership is a really interesting category. That's somebody else's job, and I'm just filling in. I'm a substitute teacher or whatever. But if this is my class, we're designed to have a certain possessiveness. Being a temp cuts that out, right? But when I, when I know it's delegated that, that this is mine and do what you can with what I've given you, when you think of it, whatever the task is that way, and now let's talk about owning people. Well, I can't talk like that. Well, in the sense that I mean that you have delegated responsibilities in how you will deal with the relationships, owning the relationships that you have with people. And everybody in your life, every person in your life has a different sort of nature of that relationship. The way I deal with you is going to be different than the way I deal with you because different responsibilities, but two people and I have a relationship with both. And so thinking through the complexity of that is what I really want to kind of talk about today. And so the Bible gives us the summary that is true in every case. The interesting thing that God expects from us then to do is think through how do I do this in this specific instance. See, the general principle is love. The specific instance is what does love look like in this situation? And it's hard. It's hard. You have to think. And that's the opposite of uh, the way people tend to want to approach love. They want love to be this compulsion. I don't feel anything uh, compulsively, so I don't make any choices for which I'm responsible. And that's, that's not the way. So we're going to talk about loving people in the general sense, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tease out some of the specific things that will fall out of that. In John 13, verse 1, you have the greatest example ever. It says, now before the feast of the Passover with Jesus knowing, and I've added some things because the, the English translations are struggling with a, a Greek complexity in verse 1. But he says, with Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, main sentence, main clause in that whole conglomerate is he loved them to the end. Amen. <sighs> 
unto the telos, unto the end, must be foreshadowing chapter 19, to telestai, it is finished. Telos, to telestai, it's the same word, root. He loved them all the way to the cross and his death for their sins, I believe is what is foreshadowed by this. Because what is the end? He still lives ever to make intercession for me. So that's not the end. It's not the end of, the, of, of forever. He loved them to the completion of the mission. And this goes hand in hand with agape, agapao, the verb form in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I love this. Every time I read through John, this one grabs me a little bit. I'm like, oh, I love that way that's stated. He loved them to the end. He loved you to the end. There was nothing he held back. And he provided what was necessary, what you needed, what God wanted you to have. And he had joy in front of him to do it. The joy set before him in Hebrews chapter 12 that he has set down at the right hand of the Father. He knows he's going to the Father. To get there, he's got to drink this cup. He's got to do this thing that he says, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But he knows he's headed to the Father. That's the ultimate destination. There's a lot in this verse that is um, powerful to help us with our perspective. See, Jesus had a stewardship. He had a delegated responsibility from his Father. That's the way it works within the Trinity. The Father makes a plan. The Son carries it out. He had a delegated trust, a sacred uh, a stewardship that the Father gave him to reveal him and ultimately to pay for our sins on the cross. And that's his mission. And he's, he is on mission. He, never was, he was never not on mission. Didn't you know that I had to be in my Father's house? He's always on mission. And part of that mission is that he loved his own who were in the world to the end. Now, biblical Christian agape love is not affection. It doesn't mean affection. It doesn't mean a compulsion. It's more, if you want a one word, and I don't like one word for it, but if you want one word, it'd be more like duty than affection. If you really want to like, figure out where we are. I'm just, I, what, I'm driving, okay? I'm driving to the green when I say duty. I'm not, I'm not at the putter yet. But, but that gets us in the ballpark to switch metaphors because we're going to score a touchdown before this is over. <laughs> All right. So he loved his own until the end is about his self-sacrificial work on our behalf to provide our salvation. Now, here's an interesting theological question. He's going to the Father. We know the Father has planned this for him. We know that Matthew 26 and Gethsemane, not as I will, your will be done. We know from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father, pleased Yahweh to crush him. Okay, so is he doing this out of love for the Father, out of love for his disciples? That's some fun theology. Did he do it out of love for the Father, out of love for the disciples? And um, I know you know the answer is both, but that's your pattern. It's not that I just love God, so I take care of you. It's that I love God, and so I love you. And it's, it's, a, it's dual. My motivation starts with God, and then it drives me to love you. And that's the way we're supposed to think. Jesus did it because he loved the disciples. You want to know a verse that tells you Jesus loves you? 
Can you show a kid in the Bible that Jesus loves you? Well, God so loved the world. Well, that's the father who sent his son. I said specifically the second person in his humanity that he loves you. This is one of those read through the Bible things and look at what that says. It's in Galatians 2. At 20 or 21, he says, he loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. It personalizes for the Apostle Paul that love of Christ that sent him to the cross for us. And so um, this is heavy stuff. The first thing that you knew about God was that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. So you knew the greatest act of love that's ever been uh, brought forth in all of world history. So you knew from the very beginning of your relationship with God what it's like to love someone self-sacrificially because you knew, as you think about your salvation, you knew that Jesus is your Savior. You knew that he did this for you. You knew it was his love that sent him. And so this act of love is the paradigm, the cross. Everyone's got the cross in their, uh, you know, in their what, cross necklaces and, and crosses on our, on our journals. And what is that saying? What is that cross? Is that God loves us and we are to love in the same way. We're to be self-sacrificial considering what the other person needs as God would define it and seek that as we can in God's provision. So we'll skip a lot of John 13 now for our theological discussion and go to chapter 13, verse 34. In my Bible, it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. See, English translators struggle with the grammar of the Apostle John from time to time. I know you've probably been told John's very simple grammar, but it depends on what questions you're asking. We understand what this is saying, but we struggle with the structure of the sentences sometimes. By this all men will know that if you're my disciples, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, 35. For those of you who have heard me once or twice, you probably have this memorized. And that's a good thing. I grew up listening ardently to my pastor and the things that he repeated, I memorized. These are how I memorized scripture for the most part as a kid. And it's very important that you would have these verses memorized. And they're dense and they say a lot of things. A new commandment I'm giving in this moment, what I'm doing right now is giving this to you. And so you just put yourself in the situation where Jesus is talking to them and they see him face to face. If Jesus sat down with you and said, here's the deal, here's what I want you to do. Here, have a seat. He's in his desk, you know, the boss, and he's sitting there across the the desk from you and he says, here's what I need for you to do. Here's what I want. This is my requirement for you. Is this going to be a problem? I mean, you're right there in the moment where he's telling them what he wants. And he just washed their feet and gave them an example that they humble themselves. He's the Lord of all, yet he put on the towel as a slave. And so he doesn't obey them, but he submits himself to perform what they need as a servant. And this is very hard for us to sort out. He doesn't put himself under the disciples authority. He's under his father's authority and he washes their feet because it's what they need. But to do that, he's got to humble himself and become lower than them in his posture, in his self-portrayal. This is what love requires. You can't worry about whether people are honoring you or whether you are considered the, the one that you are. That, that can't enter our minds. We're thinking, what does God want for this person? That's the way love works. But he says, a new commandment I'm giving to you. 
And the summary is that you love, in a summary form, that you agapao, agapao, to love in that sense of John 3.16. It doesn't mean to feel a, a compulsive affection for. If I gave you a quiz after today, it would have two questions. And the first one would be, true or false, agape love is an emotional compulsion. And the answer is false. And the second question would be, true or false, agape love is talking about affection. And the answer is false. It's not that, but it may involve that as it would be appropriate to the case. Agape love provides the needed thing. Sometimes that's affection. And we're not, we're not just manipulating situations. We want to be in the moment as we should be with people. But they're different categories is what I'm trying to say. And so this is helpful for some of you. You have people that you need to agape love. You need to love as Christ loved who you cannot feel affection toward. It's okay. He didn't say feel affection toward them. It's not about that. See, that's why I'm saying it's better to, to, to um, what's the word, to um, drive to the, over to the green with the word duty as a, than to start with feelings or affections or emotions or compulsions. All right, this word agape. One of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, Mark Rabin, I could tell you, alone. We did a series on that recently, and it's this word one another. It's a really strange word because it means two people. And it's the interpersonal interface between the two, a lay alone, one another. We can't do it in English with one word, but they have one word in Greek for it. And then the standard by which we will do it. The commandment's clear, love one another. And you could say, well, that's just the same as we had in Leviticus 19, 18. We were commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think what he says next makes this a bigger thing, an advancement on that. He doesn't say love one another as you love yourself. He says love one another as I've loved you. The standard by which we are commanded to love takes this command into the realm of the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot do what Jesus is saying from the flesh because he says kathos, just as I've loved you. If the standard of love is the love of Jesus, then we're in trouble because we don't have it. God, what you've commanded, I'm going to have, you have to provide. How can we do what you've said to do? Well, he gave you his Holy Spirit. And what do you think the word in Greek is for love and the fruit of the Spirit is love? What do you think that word is? Did you think agape? It's not phileo. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. It's this, it's this love. And you can do it. But I can't love her. You can. You don't have to like their behavior. You don't have to approve of the person's choices, but you have a responsibility to do this, and you can because you have the Holy Spirit. The standard is, uh, I call it, it's like theological vertigo, like just the idea of being capable or required to do something as well as Jesus does. That is just a heavy burden. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is God? Do you believe in the Trinity? Do you believe that the third person of the Trinity is omnipotent? Do you think that he can take, like Jesus did, the two fish and five loaves and make it sufficient? Can he take you and broken little old you and me and, and make us able to love as Christ loved? Yeah, he can. 
It's called the fruit of the Spirit. That's a bit, I, I understand it's a heavy lift. Especially for me, it's a heavy lift that I would be able to do this. But with no, nothing will be impossible with God. This is why I say it's grace works. It's a command. You're responsible to do it. When you choose to do it, the Spirit enables you to do it. Right? And you're, you know, He's working in you both to will and to work what pleases Him in Philippians 2.13. He's uh, really clear, isn't he? Because he says, just as, see this little dot right here? In this manuscript uh, edition, the, the Robinson Pierpoint uh, majority text, they put um, a, a semicolon. That little dot right there is a semicolon. I know you're like, that does, that, that's half of a semicolon. That's a semicolon. But in Greek, that's the way they annotate it. And that's the scholar saying, we think this is the pause. It's not what John wrote. If you get the oldest parts that John wrote, it's all capital letters, and there's no, sometimes you're missing spaces and stuff. But um, anyway, the point is that, that they put a break here, so I went with it. Just as I've loved you, as the, the opener for the new clause, just as I've loved you, I'm sorry, for the new co- compound sentence, that, following up with what he said before, that also you love one another. All right, he says it twice. What do you get out of that? He's, he's underlining. He's saying, be sure you got this. This is a question you and I should be asking every interaction, every moment of our lives, especially when we're angry, especially when we're in a bad place, especially when we know we're not thinking along God's thoughts, when we're, when we're not walking with him. When we come to ourselves, there's probably a big omission here. I probably haven't done what he said. Now, I believe that one of the great definitions for sin, as we said last time, is to disobey God. Does that make sense? When we don't do the thing God said to do, that's a sin of omission. When we do the thing God said not to do, that's a sin of commission. We, we transgress. That's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. How do you get to know the good and evil? You disobey God. And then you know where the line is. I think that's what that tree was in the garden. Very easy test to, to get right. Oh, don't eat that? Okay. Done. So what I'm saying is that when you disobey God, there is doing the thing that he said not to do, but there's also doing, not doing the thing that he said to do. And this is one of them. This is one of the things that we, there's a huge omission in our, in our Christian lives at times when we're not loving as he commanded. And Paul says the goal of our instruction in 1 Timothy 1.5 is love, pure heart, clear conscience, sincere faith. That's what we're after. And it's, this is a big summary thing. Like, how can I evaluate my life? How do I know? When you look at your day, do you do this at the end of the day? Do you look at how your day went in your prayer time? Thanks for getting me through. Thanks for the hardship. Thanks for picking me up, dusting me off when I failed. You know, however you're working through, one of the great ways to assess is how did I love? Did I do the things that you wanted me to do that would amount to love? And I believe that you and I can look at John, the Gospel of John, and get a hard, a hard knockdown definition of what love is, of this love. I've said it's not affection. I've said it's not compulsion. Okay, You might feel like having this. I've, I have, I mean, emotions are very complicated, how they interface with, with our choices and our you know, motivations. I think there's a really, once you get a, a concept and a desire to, to, to be about God's work, there's emotional satisfaction. There's a feeling of joy associated with doing what he says. 
Do you know what I mean? At least I know what, God, what do you want? I know what I'm responsible for, and then I do it, and that's fits. That's, there's a joy, inexpressible, full of glory as we walk with him. So a new commandment I'm giving to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. The standard is to his perfection that you also love one another. Now, there is a consequence in verse 35, as you know. The consequence is the witness. You don't have to mark yourself up with Bible verses. You don't have to run around with crosses or uh, fish bumper stickers, okay, to tell people that you're Jesus' disciple. What you should do, what we need to do is love. Because when we become known for this, people will know we're his students, Mathetes is this word disciple, and that is best translated into English if you want a, a synonym for disciple, it's student. Some say it means follower. I think it's better to understand it's a teacher with content to deliver to the students that if they take it and do it, they'll be his disciple. That's what Jesus is, and we follow him in the sense that we're listening to what he said and doing it. What other sense is there following him? Oh, we're following him around carrying the money box. <laughs> Judas was a follower in that sense. He followed him around. He didn't internalize what he taught. He didn't do it. The next hour we'll hear in John 7, or sorry, Matthew 7 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll hear what Jesus says about wisdom and folly regarding whether you hear my words and do them or whether you hear my words and don't do them. See, a disciple gets it. Lord, you said it. You know what the deal is, so we're going to trust you and then execute. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. This is the consequence of the double-down command to love to his standard, that we carry the mark. The mark of Christ is that you love in the power and the capacity to the standard that he loved. And that's a high calling. That's, that is a delegation. Hopefully, you feel a heavy burden that, uh, that the Spirit makes light. You can do it you got to choose it if you have love for one another. Now, this is interesting. It's just, I'll, I'll note it in passing, but this word to have has the object as love, agape, the noun. So far, he's been commanding love in the verbal form, agapao, and now he says it is the having love. And that's the correct way to understand it. And it is, um, it is something you do, but it's also something that you have. And uh, how does that work? Well, that's sounding more like an affection. No, it's a posture. It's an orientation. It's an attitude that will include affection. Will include affection probably in most cases, but it it isn't required that you feel something, uh, uh, fondness uh, toward the person that you're commanded to love. All right. Um, Let's pause on the video up here and just talk a little bit. If the command is to love as Christ loved other people, then we better figure out what that word means. For God so loved the world. I think the grammar in John 3.16 is tighter than sometimes we think. I don't think the point is so much comparison that he loved the world so much. Look how big his love is. That could be included. But I think he says God loved the world this way, in the following way. This is how he did it. And that's the... That's the little word particle group um, in, in John 3.16 that's being translated uh, so. 
What does the word so mean? What does God so love the world? I think it's better to understand it as God loved the world, colon. God loved the world thusly. This is how he did it. He gave his only son. I believe agape love is thinking what God wants for the other person and then doing it or being about that, oriented toward God's desire for the other person. I think that summarizes John 3.16 love. It isn't what the person wants. See, this will solve so many problems. I want the thing that I want. Well, is it good for you? I don't care. I want it. Well, that's not, I'm not going to give you that just because you want it. I'm not going to withhold it because you want it either and be a, be a stinker, right? Oh, you want that? Well, that's the one thing you're not going to get. <laughs> you, you know, that, that's not love either. either. Love is beyond what you want and asking what does God want for you. It's relational. God, what do you want? And that's, that can be a prayer. Father, help me know how to love this person. What do you want for this other person? All right. I'll summarize love as thinking and desiring and then acting on what God wants for the other person without regard to what you get from it. It's got to be, it's got to be, love them to the end. It's got to be Jesus giving himself. Now, Jesus has a joy that's before him. He has motivation, and, and part of it is to get the church for himself. We read in Ephesians 5 when we're comparing Christian marriage to Christ and the church. There is a, a thing that Jesus gets from it, but, but, but he's not primarily thinking of that, I contend. He's thinking, what do they need and how can I provide it? And so, what does God want? I'm going to desire it and act on it, that desire part. That's, that's, that's a tough one. God, help me want this person to do what you, have what you want them to have. The unlovable person, the enemy that you're still supposed to love. You can, but it's not affection. So what you do is you think what does God want, and then you ask him to help you, and you choose to want that for the person and to act on that for the other person without regard to what you get out of it. We're told that husbands are commanded to love their wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Have you all studied this out? Some, some of you have studied with me. Um, what does it mean to love your wives as Christ loved the church? It's exactly John 13, 34. Love one another as I've loved you. In fact, this sentence here that you love one another just as I've loved you is the same exact grammar as, Jesus, as Paul's command that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives just as Christ has loved the church. It's the same sentence. And the same people. You can say, well, this says I. Well, Jesus is speaking. So when it says Christ, when Paul says Christ, it's like he has, he has copied and pasted the sentence of Jesus in John 13, 34 into Ephesians 5. Uh, was that 20? Is that 525? Husbands, you know, I should know it if, I, if I'm going to preach it, right? Ephesians 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. Now, that's a high calling. It's a powerful responsibility. We all want to wonder why does Paul say to wives to submit to their husbands and, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Well, if you, if you really unpack what he's saying, what love is, we're Christians, we got our definitions from Jesus. This is a wife gets a second shot, a second example. She has Jesus' example in John 13, and then she has her husband living it out toward her. What's she supposed to do with that? Your household becomes a household of love, man. That's what it's supposed to happen. You follow Christ and then provide a second example for your wife, and then she has no excuse but to be a loving, self-sacrificing, about God's business toward other people person. Your household just became a house that is literally characterized by Christian love. And let's say that the husband has it and the wife doesn't get it. That's not going to work for that household to be loving. Because the, the, how important is, is the household, uh, how is the wife to the household? I think they're almost synonymous. Almost. The spirit of, the, of any institution is the women. We know this. You're the soul of the organization. So we don't have love. Uh, with a, I think that's why you get two examples, ladies, to be loving. And he doesn't say you're not supposed to love your husbands. He says there's a prior responsibility. And you could also argue if that's what God wants you to do toward your husband, to submit to him, if that's what God wants for your husband, then you acting on that, desiring and acting on that is fitting into that definition of agape love, that you do what God wants toward the other person. So this is tough. Now we're talking about love and marriage, and it is not talking about affection. But it is the secret to a happy marriage, I believe, that if you get hold of that self-sacrificial part, don't think about you. I don't mean that you're dying for the person. I don't mean, men, that you're living for her necessarily either, but part of what you're doing is living for her. But if you let go of you in order to take care of her, you'll be doing what Jesus did. And if she'll let go of her to take care of you, you'll have a happy marriage. And that is... Why Christian love is the answer for marriage. But, but that would mean all the things that that would mean. That would mean tell the truth. I mean, deal with you. I mean, that would mean you need the Holy Spirit. By the way, in Ephesians 5, the marriage passage, you all know this, right? 525 is in the context of 518. 525 comes after 518. What's 518? Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit have his way let him express himself because the consequence is the result that you'd speak to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing make a melody in your heart to the lord give me thanks to the father at all times for all things in the name of the son and um and submitting one to another in the fear of christ wives to your husbands see the whole context is it's the result of the filling of the spirit which is supposed to produce in us the fruit of the spirit which is love see so these all inter, interrelate, they're intersecting. But how do you love a spouse? Well, you think, what does God want for this person? What does he want for a husband to provide for this woman? That would be definitely affection in all its forms. What does God want for her and in my particular role in her life? What is, ladies, what does he want for me, for him in this? And how does that work? And going to God about it changes everything. The reason the, broke, the breakdown, the reason the problems in marriage is that we're not going to God and thinking, what does he want? And it's easy to see why you don't. You can't see him, and you see this person and the, 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 the wreck that is the, the interactions. The communications are broken and all that. And, well, sometimes we have to go up on the mountain by ourselves to pray. You've got to get time with your father to be able to manage 
the mission and the ministry he's given you, including your marriage. So that's one example, marriage. How else would we carry this out? You've got your children. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through, what is that, 1 through 3? For one example, what do kids need? How do you care for your kids? How do you want God's best for the other person? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a summary that took all the different types of people there are and then said, this is what love looks like toward those people. What if we took all the categories of human race that would, that would include my boss and the person that's trying to, uh, to work with my boss to get me uh, fired and, uh, and uh, my cousin and my, uh, my kid's teacher, that snarky attitude, and whatever it is, all the relationships, all the things. What if there was a verse that said, these are the kinds of people there are and this is how you be about God's interests for them. Do you know of a verse? To love them. But I mean something that tells you how to love them. How to, what God wants for that person. That you would know, this is the kind of decision I'm going to make in this case. Totally different way of thinking about the people that are trouble. It's, it's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 tells you what God wants for unbelievers and for believers. Make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. If you're not a believer, we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit and equipping you to love as Christ loved, because you don't have the Holy Spirit. We're going to tell you about Jesus and what he did. And when you believe, like the Ethiopian eunuch, you're going to say, where there's water, we're going to baptize you. Into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That concludes an evangelism process by the design. That's the end, is that you've proclaimed your faith. And that initial spark of faith, when you first trusted in Christ, under hearing that message, that was the point where you received eternal life, and the Holy Spirit, and the declaration of righteousness to your account, and all the things. But, but then you're going to proclaim it. And, that, and now that we have a believer, now what do we do? Oh, they're going to heaven. They're going to heaven, right? Because they have the Holy Spirit and they have the, they have the righteousness of God attributed to them and they have, uh, I should say, um, declared to their account, uh, they're justified, um, imputed is the word I'm looking for. Uh, they have, they have um, eternal life, they have the new birth, they're going to heaven, so just that's it that's all we're doing we're just we're just saving people we're just saving the lost we're just sharing the gospel every sunday in the baptist church every sunday all through growing up this was the complaint people had uh, where i was from was it's just the gospel only just get people saved walk the aisles just as i am one more time everybody in the room saved but we still preach like we're talking to a bunch of unbelievers but jesus doesn't stop with baptism the proclamation that someone's a believer in christ and has been washed, okay, through regeneration, a proclamation of this. It doesn't affect it, it proclaims it. But the next thing is to keep all that I commanded you. Can someone give me a synonym for keep all that I commanded you? What's the word keep? Well, Lord, you commanded me all these things in my Bible, and I keep this over here on this shelf, and I don't look at it. Obey. Keep my commandments is obey them. Keep meaning guard, meaning set your watch and make sure you're looking, set a watch and look at what he commanded and then watch yourself that you keep it. It's a great word, keep. It means to obey carefully. 
Mike Shema means to hear, but it means to hear and obey in, in the Hebrew. Keep all that I commanded you, which brings us full circle. Jesus gives us a number of commands. This is the big one. This is the new one. The epistle of 1 John basically is elaborating on this. This is how you deal with people, for God's sake. And now, in terms of stewardship, is it odious that you have to love people? No, it's a privilege. But I need the power of God to do it. It's a grace stewardship. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we praise you for all your good gifts, Father, and especially for eternal life. We certainly want to share the words of life to anyone who may not hear it. That Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. That he died in your place and paid for your sins, and that you... With all your wretchedness, all your brokenness, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, we are all like sheep have gone astray, each turning to his own way. Jesus paid for your sins. He died in your place to offer you this eternal life that you get simply by believing, by trusting in him. The Apostle Paul's proclamation to the, to the wicked Roman jailer in Philippi, the Philippian jailer, is... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You're in your house. We've covered God's love, but it's very clear about the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That means to be separated from God forever, but to have eternal life. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you through these words of life and that we have life to live, to grow, to build. We have to be in your word to do it. Be walking with you to do it. Father, strengthen us to grow and be about your work. In Christ's name, amen.